0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good to see all of our guests who are here with us uh, as well. And uh, I know some of you have been wanting Miss Ola's autograph today after her nice interview on Thursday night on uh, More Wild Talk. But uh, she was so nervous, so nervous. And then we get the highest ratings we've ever had because because Miss Ola. But uh, if you don't know Miss Ola. And I know all of our people do, but she's 101 years old, and she's got a lot, a lot, a lot of um, memories and knowledge and love and everything else. And we just, I just think the world of her, really do. I just disagree with her baseball team, that's all, you know. She's a, she's a, she's a Braves fan, I'm a Cubs fan, and you know, those, but that's okay, we like each other. So we are in Luke chapter 24, as you have seen here this morning. Our summer road trip has now taken a turn onto the Emmaus Road, which is really in debate exactly where this road may have been. But it's here we do know that Jesus appeared to two disciples who, um, on the day of Jesus' resurrection, it's it's the day he is resurrected. And, And yet, we see that, you know, there's the women, they... That morning they had had heard from the angels that Jesus had risen from the dead. But when we look into the text, we see that they are leaving Jerusalem on the Emmaus Road. And it's like, why, why are they going away from Jerusalem? It's because they, just like the apostles, they did not believe the testimony of the women. And so they had given up hope. Luke says that they looked sad, if you notice that back in verse 17. And the reason is their expectation of the Messiah had not been fulfilled. How can a Messiah die? You know, where is this kingdom that, that Jesus kept talking about? And so they were just so disillusioned. As the story continues, we learn the name of one of the men, Cleophas. But Luke doesn't tell us the other name. Why is that? Don't know. But it wouldn't be uncommon for these Jewish writers to leave someone out so that we could put ourselves in the story. Because we too, at times, we are disillusioned. We are disappointed. We feel like maybe that things have not worked out the way we believe that they would as believers in Jesus you know someone in our life they die and and we feel like definitely younger than they should have and it's like how could how could Jesus allow this to happen we know that he healed the sick we know that he raised the dead why my loved one or you know I, i've always been faithful in giving the first to back to god every week and so so how can I be laid off from work? I thought as long as I put God first, I would always be blessed financially. That didn't work out. Or, or you know, the Spirit of God is said to come and have lived in me. So, so why do I deal with depression? How could God allow that to happen? And, and it may be something you that's different than the ones that I've mentioned. But there have been those times, whether those times are right now in your life, or whether they've been other times, but it's, it's those times where we've, we've doubted and we've wondered. These two disciples, they are on the road to Emmaus, going the wrong way. They're leaving Jerusalem. Now, those of you who know me, you know how much I love a chiastic structure. And these Jewish writers did them very, very often. And Luke does it quite often. And, and if you've not been in here before, and when I talk about chiastic structures, basically, there's something that's said in the beginning, such as the journey from Jerusalem, and it will end with something that is almost exactly the same, this journey to Jerusalem, where their appearance of the obstructed eyes, and down here we're going to see their eyes are open, there's this interaction, and the summary of the things, and so forth. And so we come to the middle... In order to see these writers are showing us what is this about. What's really important here and what is it? Jesus is alive. Because what we find in this story with these two disillusioned disciples is that an interaction with the risen Lord changes everything. It changes their mood. It literally changes their direction. It changes their understanding of Jesus Our journey along the Emmaus Road is is to do the same thing for us. Jesus seeks the downcast. He seeks those who are disillusioned, those who have doubts. He is the Good Shepherd and he comes to seek his own. He comes beside them and he listens. This is a, a painting from the 17th century. It was painted by a, uh, a Swiss artist by the name of Robert Zund. He's not very popular, um, but you see he does a very beautiful painting. This is his rendition of Luke chapter 27. You will notice that he, he paints these beautiful oak trees. They're gorgeous. He loved to do that in his paintings. Unfortunately, this is not what the, the countryside of Emmaus looks like. It looks a whole lot like lucerne switzerland where he's from but you get the idea and how beautiful it is to gaze into this picture and just to think about what what did jesus saying to these disciples who are disheartened and yet they didn't know it was jesus did they remember what paul just read it says that jesus comes along beside them but they are not allowed to see him. They're not allowed to see him in that he is the Christ. And you wonder about this. Like, well, why is that? Because we know other times, most of the time, when the resurrected Lord comes, it's like, here I am. And it's like, why didn't he do this here? Look, stop being so sad. It's me. See, look, it's me. Let's go back to Jerusalem. But he doesn't do that. Instead, what Jesus does is is he has this Bible study with these two guys in their walk to Emmaus. It's really quite interesting. But here Jesus says to them, and this is verses 25 through 27, he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He explained the Hebrew scriptures from Moses to the prophets so that they could fully and completely understand him as the Christ. It's Hugh of, uh, of St. Victor who said all sacred scripture is but one book. We often think it's two books. It's not. It's one book and that one book is Christ. Jesus' life calls for us to have a rereading of the Old Testament. Because it's that hearing of those things in this text we see that their hearts burned within them. As I gaze into Zun's painting, I can't help but think, especially as a preacher, man, I sure would have liked to have heard what he had to say. I'd love to hear Jesus explain the whole scriptures, wouldn't you? But I also realize that if Luke had recorded all of it, then we've got another chapter or two. But it it doesn't make the Bible any less complete. Because the Word of God, if we are willing and intently want to see and to hear and to truly allow it to change my life rather than coming in with my own preconceived ideas, which kind of what was happening with these two disciples to begin on the road, then what we learn is that we're able to see things that maybe we'd never seen before. God's word is, is this light. It shines on everything. Now, don't get me wrong. This encounter that they have with Jesus, it's, it's pretty spectacular. But God's word and hearing of that word can still burn in our own hearts today. But we live in a very cynical world, don't we? Why not? I mean, most people just don't tell the truth. A lot of folks don't expect the truth to be told. You know, um, politicians lie. You may not know that, but they do. Uh, You may not realize that there's a lot of folks out there who have agendas. Social media is a mess. And it's like, well, who can we trust? Well, you, of course, you're the preacher, right? Even we disappoint. Just this last week, I, I read about one of my favorite past Cubs and uh, his wife had cheated on him with their minister. This is the same guy who had counseled him when he was dealing with depression and other things. And, and then he goes and he has this affair. And then turns out that he has taken money from his charity as well. It's just awful. And, and that's why a lot of people are like, well, unless I can see it, I'm not going to believe it. And some people think, listen, if if I could just see Jesus, I would become a believer. And I want to say to them, really? Because he came to earth one time and they killed him. And if you think our world is so much better than it was back then, then you really don't understand our world very well. Thousands of them saw and witnessed Jesus' miracles and yet, many of those same people yelled for him to crucif- be crucified. You see, seeing is not believing. And it's like, well, if seeing's not believing, then what is? Well, what we learn, Paul tells us that hearing is believing. Hearing of the Word of God. Now, look, I know not everybody that reads this book is going to believe it. We know that. We know Jesus, even when, when the very words of God are being spoken out of his own mouth, there were many who still did not believe. But folks, this word is, is absolutely one of the great means in which the Spirit works in our lives. It's, it's the way that, that helps to lead people to faith. It helps to maintain our faith. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes to a Samaritan village. Samaritans, remember we talked about them before. He goes to a Samaritan village and they came to believe when they heard these words from Jesus. Wow, and do you know what, there was not one recorded miracle there in that Samaritan village. Now if you contrast that with the very next place Jesus goes, which was a, a Jewish area, he rebukes an official because he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This last week, um, I found out, Stephen Brooks, you remember, some of y'all remember Stephen Brooks, he grew up in this church, he's got cancer again, and it's returned in three places, It's, it's, it's split, one area has already made him blind in one eye, he's now wearing a patch. He's got another area that's between his esophagus and his spine, and that's the one that's going to kill him. They can't get it out of there. They can only try to slow it down, but he's got somewhere between three to ten years to live. Some of you remember Stephen. Um, I remember it wasn't too long after I had gotten here that I did his father's funeral, Tyrone. wasn't... Too much longer after that, I did Cindy, his mother's funeral. A Few years later, I did his grandmother, Opal. He really's got a, only a sister left. She lives here. He lives in Oahu, Hawaii. And and I just remember. I just remember the struggles that Stephen went through, and so many things in his life. And then to think, on top of everything else, he he. All he has left in this world, really, besides his sister, is his 13-year-old son. And just as his parents died when he was a young man, that's what his son's going to experience. And I just, it just kind of took the breath out of me a little bit, but I was able to talk to him on the phone. And I'll tell you this, he was not on the Emmaus Road heading out of Jerusalem. Stephen has this amazing faith in God that you may not realize. He was so upbeat. He was encouraging me instead of the other way around, right? And and he said to me, he said, Tracy, he said, listen, if, if you were in heaven with God, he said, is there anything in this world that would be better than that? He said, even all the good that you've experienced, he said, don't you know that being with God is even better? And he said, I love my son. He said, but I know that what's beyond this life is better. And he's just so encouraging. And, and, and it's like, where did he learn this stuff? Well, he learned it probably from some of you who taught him. From a very early age, what the Bible has to say about things like this. He, he's still learning these things at, at the Church of Christ there in Oahu where, where he goes. And, 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 and it's God's word that has told him about this hope. This hope that even what seems to be like the worst, where a lot of folks would be like, I'm done, I'm out of Jerusalem, I'm headed to Emmaus. He realizes there are promises here that go beyond even the things that occur in our world. The Bible is this eclectic book. It really is. Man, it's it's got history, it's got poems and songs, it's got prophecies, and and all of these in-depth narratives. And if you just single out one particular area, or you're just reading one particular section, let me tell you something you're going to miss out on a lot of what God wants you to know about him. You really are. Jesus, he isn't interested in in just giving us some laws to follow. He, He wants to walk with us. He desires to be with us. Jesus may not be physically present with us as he was with those two disciples, But rest assured, he sent his Holy Spirit to come and to reside in his people. His Spirit is the one who is the author of this great book. His Spirit is the one who continues as we read that he helps us in understanding the things that God has told us. And helping us to put these things together. If we want to see. If we are willing to to just go to it and lay apart all of our own ideas of what we think it should be and just let it speak to us. This is a living book. It convicts, it encourages us, it, it, it helps us to grow And it's like whatever your issues may be in your life, whatever disappointments, whatever disillusionments you may be, what is it in Scripture that may be speaking to you? It may be something that Jesus said in John chapter 16 where he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Did he say you might have trouble? Did he say, you won't have trouble? No, so, no, no. He says, you will, you will have trouble. But then what does he say? But take heart. He says, because I've already overcome the world. Or maybe it comes from Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and what? Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Or maybe it's something like Romans 8 in verse 28, where he tells us all things are going to work out. All things are going to work for good to those who love the Lord, those who are called according to his purpose. That's the Emmaus road. It's walking along this road and our discouragements and and our disheartened and the things that we, the, the unfulfilled expectations, and it's just getting and digging deep into God's word and finding out what is it that God is wanting to say to me as I walk along this this road. Here's another picture from another artist. It was three centuries before. It is an Italian artist. Now, he is very well known, Caravaggio. You may have heard of him before. You ought to look up his stuff. He's got some pretty amazing things. And it doesn't mean that, you know, everything you see in Christian art is going to be biblically accurate. I don't know if this was here. I don't know if there was a servant there. I don't know. But here's what he was drawing, and this is what this picture is all about. This is his view of the Emmaus experience, except he doesn't take it from the road. He takes it from when they arrive in Emmaus. And this is the moment when Jesus breaks bread and their eyes are open. They see Jesus, but it's right before he vanishes. Isn't that cool? Art is really cool. You may not get into it. I love it. What a moment. But, you know, if you read the story, when they arrive to this, the disciples' house, Jesus acts like he's just going to keep walking. He wants to be invited in. Even though Jesus has come to them, he still wants to be invited in. And folks, it's the same with us today. He walks with us, he's trying, he's doing everything he can to lay before us. But eventually we've got to decide, Is am I ready to just absolutely have fellowship with God? I've got to invite him into my life because he's standing there at the door and he's waiting. So what happens when they invite him in? This is so good. Listen to this. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Luke's gospel is so unique. I love these gospels. They all write in different ways. Luke makes a real distinction between eat bread, which he mentions in various places, and breaking bread. And anytime you see the breaking of bread in Luke's gospel, there is a four part formula. We see it in the, uh, in the feedings and at the Passover meal where he institutes the Lord's Supper. And all of this is supposed to be brought together the taking, the blessing, the breaking, the giving, the taking, the giving, the breaking, the giving. You see it. It's just a pattern that is there. And then Luke writes, Another book which goes along with Luke, by the way, is supposed to be Luke Acts, but we split it later on in history. But guess what Luke does there. Every time he talks about this breaking of bread, he's talking about the disciples and they, when they came together. and what we often look at is communion. Now the question is what happened in this breaking of bread here in Luke chapter 24? what? what all of a sudden they're able to see. What, what is it Luke is trying to show us and teach us here that the living Messiah is made known within the community of disciples when we break bread? When followers of Jesus are gathered around the table, he is present, or rather, he is revealed. What did Jesus say earlier at the last supper he says this bread is my body and this cup it represents the new covenant of my blood and then Paul later on gives us a little bit more understanding of what was happening here as well that when we eat the bread and we drink the cup that we participate we actually commune with the one who gave himself for us. The bread and the cup does not change nature. Some, some have taken it that, you know, all of a sudden it becomes the flesh of Jesus and the blood of Jesus in a literal sense. I don't, I don't believe that, but neither do I believe that, that these elements are to be taken symbolically either. I don't believe that it's, it's just something that, um, you know, is a cognitive remembrance This is the means and how we experience Christ and how we participate in the reality of the new creation that came at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is that he has won. It is that death cannot win. What has you discouraged in this present world? What is causing you to doubt? Is it some kind of death? Is it some kind of health issues? Is it something financially? You know, what, what is it that has created these problems in your life? And then place them beside or in light of the breaking of bread and what Jesus has done for us. You see, this is why we need to come together as a community of believers and to partake of communion together because every day we are out in the world and it is just filled with discouragement and disappointments. We need the hope of communion. I know some of you are going to be shocked by this, but the Emmaus Road really goes back to the Garden of Eden. (laughs) Two, there was this couple, two people, who once walked with God, and then they ate of the tree of good and bad, and their eyes were opened, remember, and sin entered into the world, and now here we see that God is walking with this other couple and their eyes are opened when they partake of the bread which is the fruit of the tree of life. These two disciples are a physical representation of salvation history. It is looking at walking away from God in sin and walking back to God through Christ. We don't always recognize Jesus walking with us, but he does. He's trying everything he can in our times of discouragement and doubt. He gently guides us, revealing himself bit by bit until we walk into the fullness of his glorious presence. I don't know what some of you are going through. In fact, some of you, as we come to this moment of communion, you may even feel like that you're totally unworthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. One thing that I found interesting is before these two disciples believed, Jesus took the bread, he broke it, he blessed it, and he gave it to them. It was then that they were able to see, but they wanted to see, and that's, that's the thing. It wasn't that they're discouraged, it's the fact that they wanted to see. Isn't it interesting that their eyes were not open during the Bible study, which was still important. Their, their hearts were burning, right? I mean, this was a big deal, but true revelation came at this point of communion. This moment has so much to offer us as we walk into this room and with all the things that we go through in our lives. It has the potential to help some of you through some of these uncertainties. Because it's here in this breaking of bread that Jesus comes. It is in this sacred moment that he comes. As we get ready to partake of this supper... Together, let us bow. Father, we thank you so much for all the love and the grace that you have given to us. Father, we thank you for your Son, who is the body and the new covenant that has been revealed into us. Father, I pray for those who may have the things on their minds, things that they just are having a hard time shaking things that they just don't understand and they may not still completely understand when they leave this day. But, Father, help them to have communion with you. Help their eyes to be open just a little bit more. Help them to have a hope that maybe they didn't have before they walked in. Father, we thank you for this ultimate sacrifice of your son so that we could live so that we could walk with you once again. Father, we just ask you to be with us and for your son to come and join us as we take this communion of the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.